Hey everybody, this is Brian, your friendly neighborhood dungeon master and the host of Cannon Fodder. Are you interested in brand new playable content, DM tips and tricks, and expanded lore for the Fractured Realms? Then consider checking out the 20-Sided Newsletter, a free bi-monthly email newsletter that delivers tons of cool content and keeps you up to date on all the latest projects within the 20-Sided Podcast universe. To subscribe, you can click on the link in the show notes below or go to 20sidedpodcasts.substack.com. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to My First Dungeon, the tabletop role-playing podcast where we put first-time DMs through their paces by helping them build and run their very first one-shot, and then circling back around to discuss what went right, what went wrong, and how they can make their games even better. On this show, we strive to help new DMs get started quickly and with confidence by providing them with the very best resources available. My guest today is the creator of one of those very excellent tools. He is the author of the popular D&D combat tactics blog, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, as well as the book by the same name, along with its two sequels, More Monsters Know What They're Doing, and Live to Tell the Tale, Combat Tactics for PCs. I am very pleased to introduce Keith Amen. How's it going? Going well. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you. I love, uh, I've been a big fan of both your blog and your book for some time now. Any, pretty much anytime I'm running a new monster, I immediately flick over to either the blog or the book and see if there's like a little tip or trick that I'm not thinking of. And nine times out of 10, there is. Can you just give me like a little brief bio on how you kind of got started playing D&D, how you kind of got into this hobby? I first read about it back in 1979. I was 10 years old. I liked doing puzzles and whatnot and uh, would occasionally get uh, copies of Games Magazine. And in the September-October 79 issue, there was a feature story on Dungeons and & Dragons, and it sounded interesting. I showed it to my mom. She got it for me for, I think, Christmas that year. And uh, we sat down and could not figure out what we were supposed to do with it. And it sat and collected dust for a long time. Like I got about as far as figuring out how to make characters mm-hmm. and, and, and did some of that with, with my friends, but that was about uh, as far as we got. And it wasn't until later toward the end of high school that I got together with a group of friends who were playing the game, had more or less figured it out and uh, began actually playing the game. So I got my start with AD&D, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the first edition. But then I, in college, I migrated to other role-playing games and didn't play D&D for a very long time. It wasn't until around the time fifth edition came out that my wife came to me and, and asked if I would be the dungeon master for a D&D game for her and some of her coworkers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I agreed and picked up the fifth edition starter set and then decided that the basic rules were not quite enough. And so I went out and, and got the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide and uh, it all took off from there. I have a very similar experience. When I was a kid, I remember my dad took me to Gen Con. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and Gen Con is one of the gaming conventions there. Big gaming convention. I'd never been to something like this before. I was maybe 10 or 11, and uh, I'd gotten really into magic, and so I wanted to, like, you know, look at all the magic stuff, and there was people doing, like, demos of, I think, I think it was 3.5. 
So my dad like bought me the starter set. We, I think we like built a character there and I was like, oh, this seems so cool. And then I took it over to a buddy's house. We like unboxed it. We we're like, oh, look at all these cool tokens and dice and stuff. And then had no idea what it was. Like we, we read the rules backwards and forwards. And we we're like, all right, so where's the board? Where's the spinner? You know, what, what is this? It's, it's a learning curve and it is especially a learning curve for DMs. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is really hard to pick up this game without watching someone else do it, which is why the actual play explosion is very, very good for the game. You know, it shows Absolutely. people this is how the game works. This is this is what it's all about. And at least now, even if you're not 100 percent sure of what you're doing, you have something on which to base your fakery until you actually do get the hang of it. Absolutely. Literally just watching like one episode, listening to one episode, one of these actual plays, all of a sudden, like you go from being, what is this to, oh, now I see why people like this. Yeah. You at least understand what role everyone is playing in the game. Exactly. So you had this kind of initial look at D&D, I think, as a lot of people do, where they just like don't get it. It's tough to get into. And then especially finding fifth edition, which is so much more streamlined, it gets a little bit easier. Yes. And then what led from that to I got to start a blog and eventually write a book about monster tactics? Once I started running Lost Mine of Fandelver, I, I felt like something was missing. I had run a couple of combats against the goblins. And I was thinking, man, there's just something here that doesn't feel right. I don't think that the way this combat with the goblins felt is the way combat with goblins is supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. And for my own benefit, I decided that I would take a really close read of the stat block and try to figure out what was there that I was missing the implications of. And about the same time, I was wanting to get back into writing on a regular basis, because for the early part of my career, I had worked in journalism, and I had been an, a, a copy editor and a writer. Oh, wow. And I wanted to start doing that again. And so I thought having a blog would be a good way to get into that. I wasn't entirely sure what my blog was going to be about. But when I started doing this for myself, I thought that this was an exercise that other DMs would probably benefit from as well. And so I brought those two ideas together and it turned out that not only was there interest, there was hunger. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, it all took off from there. I can certainly attest to both the interest and the hunger for this content. It is fantastic. It's like exactly the thing you didn't know you needed. Once you started your blog and eventually the book, so you you started kind of breaking down these monsters, looking at them, seeing what was actually there in the stat block. What were kind of the main principles and like assumptions that you started with? Because you kind of need to have some sort of like rules and boxes with which to put these monsters in. What were some of those main principles you kind of started under once you started examining these these monsters? Well, so as not to take up too much of your (laughs) airtime here. I do talk about this on my website uh, on a page, on a static page called Why These Tactics, and also in the introduction to the monsters know what they're doing, and mm-hmm. then in even more depth in more monsters know what they're doing. But to try to make a long story short, I figure everything in the stat block gives you a clue. So the ability scores, 
tell you what their strengths and weaknesses are. Their traits give you a sense of their style, their actions, especially if their actions incorporate certain key conditions, give you a sense of what kinds of things to use in combination. But two of the key things I look at are what I call primary offensive ability and primary defensive ability. Mm -hmm. And this gives you a couple of dimensions you can look at with any creature. What is it used to attack? Weapons or spells? And if it's weapons, ranged weapons or melee weapons? And then dexterity and constitution, the primary defensive ability, tells you whether they want to stay in a protracted close fight or avoid it. Right. And so those two dimensions get you off to a really good start. I know you, you were talking about running Lost Minds of Fandelver and specifically looking at goblins and feeling there was something there that you were missing, that was missing from the combat. So what I'd, what I'd like to do is look at an example that every DM is at some point going to run, which is a goblin, and kind of break down the tactics of a goblin in a fight and kind of show, like, point by point show, like, what we should be doing when we're looking at a monster stat block. Okay. Well, and, and again, so I'm not taking up too much time on your podcast I'm just going to focus on a couple of these things. And then if people want to look at it in more detail, they can read it in the book or on the blog. But the two key things to look at here, well, I'm going to say three key things. The Mm -hmm. first one is their strength and their dexterity. Their strength is eight. Their dexterity is 14. So although they have a melee attack and a ranged attack, they are going to favor the ranged attack. Right. And they're going to want to stay out of a fight because dexterity 14, constitution 10. They are not tough. They're nimble. They have good aim. They are not tough. So they don't want to get into a fight they potentially might not be able to get out of. They have a very, very good stealth modifier, especially for tier one play, for lowest level play. Stealth Mm -hmm. plus six is really good. That's basically expertise. They don't just have proficiency in stealth. They have expertise in stealth, if you do the math. And so they're going to rely heavily on that. If you are not visible to your target and you attack, you have advantage on that roll. Stealth plus six gives them a very high likelihood that they are going to be unseen when Mm -hmm. they attack. So they're absolutely going to use that. And then the trait nimble escape. This is the heart and soul of their style. The goblin can take the disengage or hide action as a bonus action on each of its turns. This is free action economy. And now one thing beginning DMs might not realize is bonus actions do not have to follow actions. Mm-hmm. A creature with a bonus action can take that bonus action anytime during its turn. However, if a goblin hides at the beginning of its turn and then attacks, it's given itself away. And then it's no longer hidden. Right. But if it attacks, then moves, then hides, or attacks, then hides, then moves, depending on on how much cover it has and where that cover is, then it can set itself up So that when your turn, when the player's turn comes around, 
they have no idea where that goblin is anymore. They can't see it. They might not be able to hear it. Right. So that is what goblins do. They are hit and run fighters. They shoot. They move. They hide. Now you don't know where they are. You have to waste time looking for them. And they can do this over and over and over again. And if you finally catch up with them and try to engage them in melee, which they don't like, Nimble Escape also allows them to take the disengage action as a bonus action and get away from you without incurring an opportunity attack. Right. So that is what they will do. And then they're going to use that bonus action at the beginning of their turn so that they can use their action to dash and get away from you. Or if they can get close enough to another place of cover, they can dash and then hide again. They can use their regular action to hide or they could flip it around. They could use their regular action to disengage and their bonus action to hide. It doesn't matter. The point is that not only are they tailored to fighting from cover and hiding in between turns, but if you try to force them into melee, they can slip out of it. And, and already, like just by looking at Nimble Escape, we've gone from what could be a very boring encounter of I shoot at him, he shoots at me, I hit him, he hits me, to now it's a chase, it's a hide and seek. It's like I'm trying to catch up to them, they're running away, they're hiding. How do I find them? All of a sudden, a player, especially a low level player who doesn't get to do a lot per turn just based on action economy, there's so much more to do. You're like, you're looking for things, you're running around trying to find hiding places, you're chasing after things. All of a sudden, what could be a very by rote, I'm going to hit this sack of hit points until it falls over, becomes this dynamic, moving, fun, imaginative encounter that also has a lot of ability for like role play in it. Like if these goblins mm-hmm. are running away, what did they grab something? Are they like running away with the loot? Are they trying to get away back to a more fortified position with more goblins? All of a sudden, the battlefield doesn't become squares or hexes on a board. It becomes a bit more alive. And that's ultimately like the goal. Also, it gives you as the dungeon master an incentive to make this combat encounter take place in something other than a plain rectangular room. Exactly. Because the goblins need places to hide. They want cover. So a dense forest, for example, is ideal for them an area where they can run from one tree to another tree and hide behind these trees. And they're small, so you don't need an enormous tree for them to hide behind, just a, you know, decently sized mature one or, or, you know, a labyrinth of ruins, Mm -hmm. something like that. This is, this is goblin territory, someplace where they've got lots of places they can duck into to hide. And and there's a thing you say in, in your book and ultimately in the title of the book and the blog, the monsters know what they're doing. They have evolved to have a certain set of skills, they know exactly how to use those set of skills. And if those sets of skills are only well utilized in a certain environment, they're going to try to their very darn best to get you to that certain environment and not fight you in an area where they are at a disadvantage. In the same way that PCs won't fight a dragon in its lair if they can get it to a place where they can drop a boulder on it or something. Exactly. And ultimately, like anyone who's ever played a rogue, knows exactly how fun and rewarding it is to hide, attack with advantage, get sneak attack. Now, as a DM, rather than just looking at a goblin and saying, oh, he's got a bow and he can do this. It's like, oh, no, this is just a mini level one rogue who gets to do all that crazy cool rogue shit. And all of of a sudden, not only does the battle get better overall, it gets better for your players, more dynamic for your players. It gets more fun for you if you know what the stat block does and how this monster would treat this encounter. Mm hmm. It's so much fun once you like once you start digging into some of these stat blocks. I really 
I'm going to say this multiple times in this podcast. I cannot recommend highly enough checking out the blog, buying all of the books. Please do. They're fantastic. Please support Keith because this is the kind of stuff we love having in the world. It's such a great resource. But like going, you know, diving into any monster stat block really gives you a lot of insights into the monster. And then by learning the the mechanics of which to like how you break down a monster by looking at like seeing what their offensive status, seeing what their defensive status, really looking at what kind of attacks they want to be doing. It also helps you later on if you ever want to homebrew a monster. Like you're now, rather than just trying to yes. throw stats at a page, yes. you're looking at, okay, what is this thing's desire? I know that the very first monster I ever tried to homebrew, I wanted to make a uh, kind of a purple worm type thing, but it was in the desert and its mouth, it would like essentially rest vertically in the sand with its mouth open and its open mouth would resemble an oasis. And like the, the, the pool of the oasis is like paralytic spit. Uh, and then it, so it would just like sit there and wait. It had tremor sense and just wait for something to come up, drink the paralytic spit, get paralyzed and then swallow them up. So basically a sandworm mimic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the first time I, I looked at it, I was thinking like, oh, I wanted to do this cool thing, whatever. And it didn't really work. But then when I kind of stepped back and looked at, okay, how does this thing really function within its environment? How does it function? What circumstances does it want to attract and kill its prey? Then all of a sudden, everything kind of opened up. There's a, a popular attitude, a very widespread attitude that either you're a combat player, you know, a grognard, or you're a real role player. You're, you're an immersive role player. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're a narrative player. I do not see these as opposites. I agree. Combat and role-playing are not opposite ends of a spectrum. Digging into monster abilities the way I do is a way of role-playing the monsters that goes beyond just having them parlay in funny voices. Yes. You know, just like in Live to Tell the Tale, when I uh, talk about player tactics, it's not, you know, it's not min-maxing. It's not focusing on combat at the expense of role-playing. What it is, is role-playing your expertise through their actions, role-playing your character's expertise through their actions. Absolutely. With the blend of role-playing and combat, especially in combat, even when you're running a encounter optimally, you've got your monsters, you've read, the monsters know what they're doing, you know exactly how these things are going to go. There is a tendency because it is because we're in the initiative order and like more rules are in play. There's a tendency that it can, if you're not careful, become a bit by rote. It can be, okay, I want to do my max damage. I'm going to do this attack, this bonus action movement. Okay, cool. Then the monster does this. Then I do this. And all of a sudden you're kind of going around the table. Everyone's doing their cool move and all the players are being respectful of each player, allowing them to like shine in the moment when it's their turn, which is absolutely correct. But there is an opportunity there to enhance that experience way more by when you're not the active player, when it's not your turn, to use your character, like use role-playing and things to heighten the experience of that player. So when they start doing their cool-ass thing that they've been wanting to do for 15 minutes while they've been waiting for everyone else to take their turn, you can heighten that by saying something to the monster to distract them or like you know yelling out to them, helping them out in a way that is just role-play, not necessarily like character action. And same thing for the DM. As your players are going around, they've been planning their cool turn for 10, 12 minutes, depending on how many players you have, depending on the speed of the combat. All of a sudden they get to their turn, they do their cool thing. If you just go, cool, you did 42 damage to this monster. Okay, now it's your turn. 
it's not quite satisfying, but if all of a sudden you have your player do a cool thing, if you can then role play as that monster and react to what they did, react to the way they made an attack, the way they influenced this monster, it becomes so much more alive and it becomes like a movie rather than like a board game where it is, okay, your turn. Okay. It's your turn. Okay. It's your turn. It becomes cinematic and dynamic and that's really what you want. It has aspects of both, you know, the the movie and the board game, but a lot of my monster tactics, especially for more intelligent monsters or monsters that are more capable of identifying which of their opponents pose a greater threat than others, then it's, well, who got the monster angry enough for it to retaliate against them? Mm -hmm. And how does it choose to do that? And, you know, on those more speci- on those more sophisticated monsters, you often have more abilities to choose from. And the more intelligent monsters can choose intelligently from among those abilities. And so they are not only going to pick one of the PCs to hurt, but they're going to figure out how best to hurt them. Right. And they're going to do it in that moment. And, you know, that's that's going to be a response or alternatively. What the player did might be so effective that the monster just surrenders on the spot or runs, depending on how urgently it wants to save its own skin versus how belligerent and and fighty it is. You know, that is the thing you talk about in your book that I when I read it, it was like so it's one of those obvious things that you just kind of forget. But a lot of these, especially like beasts, things with lower intelligence Retreat is always an option and is often a very good option. Like not every combat should be fight to the death. At some point, a, a smart enough monster, a monster relying on instinct knows that, okay, I'm out. I'm going to retreat to find better circuit. I'm going to find easier prey. I'm going to wait until I'm in an advantage. Yeah. And having that option in the back of your head is so much fun. Like I, I, I've never thought of it. I think a part of me before I kind of like read the book and, and looked into the blog I always thought like, oh, if it runs away, that's not, you, you want to have the killing blow. You want to have the, how do you want to do this moment? But an aspect of this being a smart, you know, thinking thing really just enhances the experience. It tries to retreat. Maybe you're running after it. Maybe you realize, oh, you know, we'll get it again later. There, there's so much more you can do when adding in this extra thing of, yeah, if something's really hurt, it might just run away. Like, that's yeah, totally and, fine. And the monster running away also gives the players a role-playing moment because now they have a moral exactly. choice to make. Do they pursue, run it down, and finish it off, or do they let it go? It adds so much more with so li- with, with, with such a little lift, with such a light lift, you add a significant amount to your combat encounters. What would a character do? if they knew they were part of a story. What would they say to the author that is pulling their strings? In Samantha Lee's solo RPG, Death of the Author, players take on the role of a character fighting for control over their narrative. Draw tarot cards and modify scene prompts to bend the story to your will. Each change, however, comes with a consequence, as the author may use your own words against you. Death of the Author is crowdfunding on Backerkit from May 14th to May 28th. You can find the project by searching Death of the Author Backerkit in your search engine of choice.
Fight the narrative. Defy your author. Little Wolves is a folktale TTRPG where players fill the fur of shape-shifting werewolves in a realm of fey and of magic called the Enchanted Forest. Players will craft physical masks that represent their characters and use them during play to shift between their wolf and their mortal forms. As they perform favors and complete quests, new marks are made on their masks that reflect the real physical changes that the werewolves undergo. The Enchanted Forest is deep and detailed with fey queens, courts, and all manner of denizen for your werewolves to meet. The crowdfunding campaign for Little Wolves launches May 14th. You can follow the campaign at bytes.rip slash littlewolves. That's B-Y-T-E-S dot R-I-P slash littlewolves. And you can check out the free demo and quick start at bytes.rip slash littledemo. Hey there, it's Elliot from the Many Sided Media team. In addition to playing and producing here on My First Dungeon, I'm also a game designer known for such games as Something is Wrong with the Chickens, a rules-like game of chickens, eldritch horror, and revenge. Project Echo, a solo time travel game played in the pages of a planner. And the upcoming Rom-Com Drama Bomb, a three-player game of meet-cutes and mayhem. If you like weird and unique games and want to bring something new to your table, head to moreblueberries.shop and use code MYFIRSTDUNGEON for 20% off your order. That's M-O-R-E-B-L-U-E-B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot shop. Thanks! I want to kind of broaden out a little bit and think less about specific tactics and more about prepping a combat session. Mm-hmm. So this is podcast is mostly for first time or newbie DMs. And with that in mind, what do you do when you're going into a session that you know is likely going to have a combat encounter? What tricks, tools, ways do you prep for those kind of sessions? Well, first of all, I always go back to my own material because one of the reasons why I write it is so that I don't have to think about it from start to finish every single time. I've already done the work and I don't have to remember it when I can go and look it up. So that's number one. Um, I say, say, what did I say about this before? (laughs) I already did this work. I don't need to do it again. Exactly. You know, don't reinvent the wheel over and over and over again. So much of DM prep for me is trying to reduce the cognitive load that I'm going to have during the game session. Absolutely. To reduce the number of decisions that I'm going to have to make on the fly, to to make as many of these decisions in advance so that they are already made and I don't have to carve off another portion of my mental processing power in order to resolve the question. The question is resolved going in. Right. And so I have a little round by round script or flowchart kind of thing for myself of how the monster or monsters are going to act and I stick to the script. Mm-hmm. Um and it's got, you know, it's got branching points depending on what kinds of things happen, but basically it's it's scripted 
and I follow the script. And only if something completely unanticipated happens, do I need to then actually start thinking about what might happen differently. And that's that's the main thing I do. I also really like Mike Shea's Sly Flourish's Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Absolutely. It's fantastic. And the reason, the, the, the very specific reason I like that book so much is that it forces me to think about certain very specific building blocks of my game session and make sure that I have covered all those most important bases and that I've not neglected them because I went down the rabbit hole on something else. Absolutely. I I know the first big campaign I ran, I ran Tomb of Annihilation for some friends. And very early on, I found Mike Shea's work because he had this whole yeah. blog posts about prepping Tomb of Annihilation yep. and then found his lazy DM session worksheets, uh, which I'll, I'll link in the description. It's fantastic. It asks, it kind of breaks down like the things that you need to know. If you can answer these questions, you're likely prepared. And it takes not long at all to fill out one of those yeah. uh, worksheets. And it's incredibly, I still have them. Like I still keep them in case I ever want to run that again. Yeah. Cause they're, it's a great tool. It's just a few key things. It's remember to throw in the handful of descriptors that make the environment feel fantastic. Mm -hmm. Make sure you know what the NPC's personalities are and how to act them out. And I would add, make sure you know what they know, because that yeah. to me is a, a thing that my games constantly revolve around. Who knows what, who doesn't know what. And how does that affect their decision making? Making sure you know what kind of information you're going to have to deliver to the players over the course of the session and figure out a couple of different ways to make sure they get that information so that if they miss one, they can still get it a different way. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. And I will say, if anyone is listening to this and starting to feel overwhelmed about like, I've got to plan out my combat session by like figuring out rounds and stuff. Keep in mind, an average combat lasts like, three to six rounds. So you're not planning, you're not planning out. It's not an insane amount of things that you're actually doing when you break it down, when you take it into small chunks, because if you're fighting any kind of monster, the first round, they know exactly what they're going to do out of the gate. Second round, you know, things get a little crazier. And then by the third round, they're probably getting hurt. Now it's a time to think, what is this creature going to do when it's backs up against the wall? Is it going to run? Is it going to do it's all out assault? Or is it going to keep fighting to the death? So when, when looking at, combats as like planning out rounds or planning out like these kind of branching things, as you said, it's not going to branch out like a whole chess game. Exactly. You know? It's going to be, you've got basically three to five moves and that's as far as you need to think about it. And, and some monsters are simple enough that you're not even going to have that much branching, right? You know, we're not trying to like a beautiful zombies. They are not sophisticated, uh, you know, AIs that you are trying to send out there. They are simple machines. Absolutely. You, you were talking about the lines to like kind of describe the fantastical environment. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't take long to, to generate. You know, all you need is two or three of those and they'll take you five to 10 minutes to think up and then you're done and you can move on to other things. You don't need to dwell on it any further. And I, I always kind of preach that the best way to level up an encounter is to really think about the environment and like make that environment dynamic and like allow the monsters to be able to move and use that environment. Are there any other things that you plan when you're planning a combat session specifically around the environment that you like to do to like try to level up the encounter, to try to make it 
that one step of not necessarily more difficult, but more dynamic, more fun, more engaging? Well, a couple of things. You know, I was talking about going through the stat block and how the traits in particular in a stat block give you a sense of the flavor and the personality of a monster. Really use those abilities and let the names of the traits guide you. The goblin's distinct trait is nimble escape. That should be the theme of the combat. The goblins are nimble and they will escape if you try to confront them directly. So that's that's the kind of game that that turns into. But another one is sheer opportunism. If if something (laughs) is laid in your lap, go for it. Uh, We were playing Horde of the Dragon Queen Mm -hmm. and we had uh, in the party a halfling ranger rogue. Actually, I, I don't think he was a ranger rogue yet at that point. I think he hadn't multiclassed yet and he was still just a ranger. But the party are in a, they're in an underground compound. They end up fighting a bunch of kobolds. Nothing, nothing super huge special there, except that the ranger, who was accustomed usually to fighting with a bow and shooting from a distance, who now is in tight quarters and being surrounded by kobolds. So now he's got to he's got to switch gears. He's got to go from the bow to the sword. And you can draw a weapon and attack with it in the same action. The drawing is a free interaction. Stowing mm-hmm. a weapon is a free interaction, but you can never take two free interactions in a turn. You can only ever take one. So switching to, from a bow to a sword If you are actually taking the trouble to put away the bow, to stow the bow, you're going to lose your action. So I get around that in my games by saying it costs no action economy simply to let go of something. Okay. I love where this is going. It means you're not stowing the bow, but you you can draw your sword and attack with your sword if you just drop the bow on the floor. All right. So that's what he did. But then when the kobold's turn came around, one of the kobolds, instead of attacking, picked up his bow and ran off with it. God, it's so much fun. And really, like, I feel like in every combat encounter, if you're taking the, the effort to run things optimally and create this interesting environment, those moments pop up more often than not. Mm-hmm. These like interesting moments that your PCs, because your PCs are trying to do the craziest, coolest, funnest stuff at the table. Cause not only do they want to have fun, they want to play their character optimally and they want to like impress their friends. They want to like, look at this cool thing I did. Look at this badass thing I did. I'm Legolas, you know, running down the, the steps on it, skating down the steps, whatever. And by interacting with the environment so much, all of a sudden, the more thing, the more like pieces they pull out of the environment, the more things fall down and the more things you can pick up with the monsters and be like, Hey, you had toys. Now I've got toys. Look at these. Mm-hmm. And it's just, so much fun how those things can kind of snowball and that becomes the encounter now because i'm sure he's like oh i gotta get my bow back exactly and now that's exactly. Half, the, yeah. half the fun of it get that kobold get that kobold oh man i love it it's so much fun this is just kind of a random one but i did have this question as i was like reading the book and the blogs as you've been breaking down monsters has there been any monster that particularly like surprised you or any like monster and monster synergies that you've kind of like accidentally uncovered that you think more people should be aware of? Like, is there a monster that is in the monster manual that everyone should be using, but no one is? 
I don't know about that. I have definitely found some monsters whose traits turned out to be kind of head scratchers. And the one mm-hmm. that really sticks in my mind in that respect is the Belhaneth. I don't even know what that is. The Belhaneth is is from it's in more monsters know what they're doing. It's on the website. It's from either Volos or Mordenkainen's. I forget which. I want to say Mordenkainen's. Okay. And it has three lair actions. Now, if you've if you've used legendary monsters, you know that lair actions take place on initiative count 20. Mm-hmm. But one of these three lair actions takes 10 minutes to take effect. And another one is no good at all unless you do one of the other ones first. And okay. both of them have to happen basically before the combat encounter ever begins. It's like laying the groundwork for the combat encounter, mm-hmm. which means you're not in initiative time yet, which means there is no initiative count 20. <laughs> And also, they have three different areas of effect, two of which are round and one of which is square. So that one, I I, I really had to spend some time puzzling that out and figuring out how those pieces were supposed to go together and realizing Mm. there was no way to put them together unless you mindfully bent a couple of rules. Okay. So there, there was that. I think the one that was the most fun was the Zorn. Ooh, okay. Because I came to realize that the Zorn's Earth Glide feature allowed it to attack from out of the ground without fully exposing itself. So because its arms stick up and its mouth is on the top of its head, it can pop up out of the ground just far enough to claw and bite at you and then sink right back in where you can't touch it. And you can you can play so many rude tricks with a Zorn. But the funny thing about the Zorn also is that it's not an evil creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a neutral creature on the good neutral evil axis. And so it's not necessarily going to start a fight with just anyone who crosses its path. It's going to come out and probably try to get what it wants from you, which is, you know, gems and metals to eat. Because doesn't it have, it's the one that has treasure sense? Yes, yes. And it also, uh, it also has an extremely high armor class. So when it's mostly in the ground and nothing is exposed except its mouth, or its mouth and its arms, it's got half or three-fourths cover. That's mm-hmm. jacking up its armor class even higher. Zorn are very hard to hit and very hard to hurt when you do hit them. But, you know, a Zorn is probably just going to come right out and point at your pack and its mouth. <laughs> Be like, come on. You know, to say, me. give me the stuff, you know. And then the way the encounter plays out depends on whether you give it what it wants or not. And if you don't give it what it wants, it's going to start to get twitchy like a junkie, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to it's 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 eventually it's going to say, I can't take it anymore. And it's just going to try to rip into your pack and take what you're not giving it. 
a Zorn seems like the best little like monster to just be harrying a party for like the entirety of a campaign. It's just like constantly pops up after they beat a big bad. It's like, hey, I need 10% or we're going to have a whole thing. There was a thing I read on uh, Reddit once. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, what is the uh, what's the most memorable enemy that your players have ever fought? And somebody replied, a single boar. And it was just this this wild boar that kept showing up and causing trouble, knocking <laughs> stuff over, breaking things, and then running away whenever they tried to uh, catch it. And this thing just kept coming back over and over and over again in the game as a running gag. And the players treated it as their nemesis. They had to get this boar. Get the pig. Oh my God, I love that so much. I love that so much. Honestly, those kinds of like, not even not even villains, but like foils or like uh, yeah. rivals are so much fun to play because they can just always be one step ahead of your party, just a little bit smarter, just a little bit better, or just a little bit luckier for no reason. And there is nothing more satisfying as like a PC to like finally beat that thing that's been harrying you and like coming back over and over again. It's better than beating the big bad. It's like the the dumb pig that keeps stealing, you know, yeah. your apples. That's the real victory of of Dungeons and Dragons that that is so satisfying. <laughs> I want to start kind of winding down here, talk about a few final thoughts. One of the biggest things on this podcast is I want to try to present to first-time DMs or new DMs the best resources and essentially give them the the cheat sheet, the starter kit that'll get them started with confidence faster than they could on their own. So uh, with that in mind, what kind of resources do you most recommend that you use in your home games or that you think are most valuable to new DMs and experienced DMs? Like what are your go-to creme de la creme tools and resources? Well, aside from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, Mm -hmm. um, I use D&D Beyond for character sheets and encounter building. And the encounter manager on that is getting better and better. It is. I'm a little bit of a Tolkienista. Okay. In in terms of world building, I really like what he does with language and how he uses different registers of English to represent different registers of, of communication within the, the languages of Middle Earth, how he uses Old English as a proxy for the language of Rohan. Mm-hmm. So I do the same thing in my games. When I am playing a game, for instance, that's set in the Forgotten Realms, my Uthgart speaks Swedish. Okay. The other Aluskan peoples, the non-Uthgart Aluskan peoples, speak Icelandic, like the peoples of the uh, the Ten Towns in the Ragged Glacier. Sure. Uh, they speak Icelandic. I use Swiss German for gnomes. I use Irish Gaelic for elves. Or sometimes I use actual Tolkien Elvish. There are a couple of websites, Cinderin Lessons and Elf Dict, short for Elf Dictionary. I use those to create phrases and, and personal and place names in Elvish. Mm-hmm. I use uh, Arabic as a proxy for primordial languages uh, like genies speak, things like that. So I use Google Translate a lot. I use the website Behind the Name, which is a very, very good resource for uh, name etymologies. 
If you want to pull names from Cornish or Breton or various other parts of the world, there is a uh, an out-of-print book that I have a copy of called Gary Gygax's Extraordinary Book of Names. Gary Gygax <laughs> did not write it. Uh, he, oh, no. Yeah, he, he uh, I guess he just licensed his, his blessing name to, to it, it and called himself the editor. Yeah, I mean, clearly it was oh, okay, done under okay, his fine. imprimatur, but he is not the author. But it's also got a lot of information about naming conventions, names from different cultures, plus for things that you cannot easily map onto real world cultures. It also has some random generation tables that give you things that kind of sound right. I had an experience running my first set, that Tomb of Annihilation session, where I thought I had prepped well. I had like a whole list of like randomly generated NPC names. Yeah. And then people say like, what's what's so-and-so's name? And you're like, uh. So a, a really good thing to do is to make, yeah, like you said, make lists for yourself in advance. Here is a list of masculine and feminine Tetherian names, Aluskan names, Chandathan names, Damaran names, and just pull from these pull from these lists. Whenever you need to name someone, just grab one of the names off your lists, make a little note next to it of who they are now and cross it off. And I will say I made the mistake of I made a, I made a whole list of names. I was ready. I was ready to go. And my player looked over at me and he said, OK, what's this guy's name? And I said, Xandar or Zindar or something. And he goes, oh, OK, cool. Zindar, what's your last name? Yep. And I went, oh, Charles. <laughs> and then that was the whole bit of that session was that this, there was this guy named Zindar Charles. Uh, so, you know, t- <laughs> learn from my mistake. Get the surnames too. get the surnames too. Otherwise, your players, I promise you, will ask you, what's that guy's last name? So, so for for D- for beginning DMs, here's something you can do in a situation like that. Have the NPC look at your character quizzically and say, what do you mean last name? Oh, I wish I'd done that. That's so much cooler. <laughs> yeah, do that. Don't listen I'm, to me. Do that. I'm Zindar the blacksmith. I'm Zindar. My father's name is Zoran. I'm Zindar Zoranson. Right. You know, whatever, whatever you just don't assume that that all of your NPCs follow basic Western first name, last name conventions. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. That's something you can decide. You know, maybe uh, like Spanish style, maybe your NPCs in a particular place have two surnames, their fathers mm-hmm. and their mothers. Maybe they are only named by their job. Maybe they are only named with a, a patronymic, uh, something derived from the name of a parent. There are lots of ways to play this off, and you never need to feel boxed in. If, if you're aware of your options, if you're aware of just how many different onomastic methods people have used around the world, you can do, you can make up anything. And not only that, you're, you're making up culture too. If somebody says, you know, what's this person's last name? Flip the script. Come up with something new on the spot that unasks the question. Absolutely. Because not only that, not only does that, answer the question in a fun way it creates now you can build on that thing that you just created it's this is a part of the culture if it's a if you're just taking your father's surname that says something about the culture if you're taking both but they're in a certain order that says something about the culture if you're only listed by your job that says something about the culture so not only have you 
answered this question in a better way than I did, you've expanded on the world, which is what we're always, every kind of decision we're hoping to make is hopefully expanding, creating a more immersive dynamic world. And with 30 seconds of audio, you've done that extremely well. I've got one more quick thing for you. Mm -hmm. I always like to end these shows by having our guest give a piece of advice to first-time DMs. So what is one piece of advice you would tell to first-time DMs who are nervous, especially about running combat encounters? Well, first, get my books because they'll give you a script. Absolutely. But second, remember, this is, this is something I learned from my years working as a copy editor. You don't have to know all the answers. You have to have an alarm in your head that tells you when you should be looking up an answer. And you have to know where to find the answer. So you have to you have to know when to ask the questions and you have to know where to find the answers. Your players won't always know if something seems off. But whenever you're feeling a little bit of doubt, take a pause for a moment and see whether someone's already clarified the issue for you. And mm-hmm. you do not have to know what page every single thing is on in the core books. But here's what I'm going to suggest. Instead of relying on the index, which is hard to read and and a lot of people have said a little weirdly organized in places, just know your chapters, all right? For the player's handbook, you know that the first things in the player's handbook are race and class. After that comes backgrounds, that's chapter four. Then gear is chapter five. Feats are in chapter six, ability scores and skills, chapter seven, all the stuff about interacting with the world, travel, light, that kind of thing is chapter eight. Chapter nine is combat. Chapter 10 is the basics of spellcasting. And then all the spells are listed in alphabetical order. That's where all that stuff is. If you just remember those associations between chapter and content, you're set in the dungeon master's guide encounter building guidelines and and the difficulty computations are in chapter three. All the treasure and magic items, chapter seven. All of the miscellaneous tables that you are going to need are in chapter eight. For me, all of the combat ones that I referred to most often, they are all in my copy of the Dungeon Master's Guide within a couple of pages of page 249. So I just remember page 249. If, if I need to look for like targets in areas of effect or mob attacks or something like that, I open to page 249 and then I flip a couple of pages backward or forward. My world revolves around page 249. <laughs> and then all of the custom action options and homebrew stuff, that's all in chapter nine. So if, if you just know the chapters you're halfway to finding what you need. And that's just as easy as taking out the index, writing them down on a piece of paper and having that piece of paper next to you while you DM. Or post-its. Just just put little tabs. Post-its, exactly. Use post-its to make tabs for your book. I love it. Keith, can you do me a favor? Just tell everyone where they can find you, all the social medias, all the places to find your book, your blog. I am at Keith Amon on Twitter. No punctuation in that. The Monsters Know What They're Doing. The blog is at themonstersknow.com. My personal website with purchase links to all my books is spyandowl.com. Again, no punctuation. You can buy The Monsters Know What They're Doing, More Monsters Know What They're Doing, Live to Tell the Tale, 
at any independent bookstore, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. If your friendly local game store does not regularly carry them, they can order them from Simon & Schuster Distribution as a wholesaler. And a link to that is also on my website, spyanel.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. I encourage everyone listening to the show to check out The Monsters Know What They're Doing, again, at themonstersknow.com. And to head over to your friendly local bookstore, your friendly local gaming shop, buy a copy of those books there. Try to support local as best you can. These books and this blog are worth their weight in gold, both DMs and PCs. I cannot recommend them enough. And they're heavy, so that's a lot of gold. That's a lot of gold, but that's a dragon's hoard right there. That is all for this episode of My First Dungeon. Thank you so much for joining. And remember, if you are having fun, you are already doing it right. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, this is Abby. If you enjoyed this episode of My First Dungeon, you might want to check out some of our other shows in the Fractured Realms. For instance, our D&D actual play anthology show, The 20-Sided Podcast. This season is called Prisoners of the Static, and I play Natasha Borshekat, captain of the Gilded Ghost. Interested? Check out the trailer and tune in every Monday for brand new episodes. Bye-bye! The Static. A mysterious, mist-covered scar left behind by the Titans. Nothing that has entered that expanse of fog has ever been seen again. Until now, that is. A message in a bottle containing two things. The first, a plea for help from the legendary weaponsmith to the gods. The second, a warning. Here, there be monsters. In Season 2 of the 20-Sided Podcast, three brand new players will descend into the unknown, shackled by their secrets and fears, and venture past the ominous white expanse to learn, only too late, that they are about to become Prisoners of the Static. Be seeing you. If you're hearing this, that means you have listened to every last second of this episode, and that probably makes you a fan of this show. Well, if you're a fan and you like what we're doing and want to help others find it as well, then consider leaving us a five-star review over on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Getting more ratings really does help more people find the show, and reading your nice words about the things that we put out into the world makes us feel all warm and good inside, and we want more of those good, good feels. So head on over to your podcast player of choice and leave us a five-star review. Thanks.